And I remember thinking, if my doctor could say to me, if you did four more IVFs, you'd have a baby. It would work. I was like, I don't, I don't have it in me. It, it just starts to feel like you're, you're knocking your head against a wall. This is Moms in the Middle, a podcast for busy parents who need a little help keeping their hustle in check. I'm Mel, mom of Josh. He's three. And I'm Ivanka. My son is George and he is two. Today, we are talking about infertility, which I know it can be a heavy topic, isolating, emotional topic. And I know you and I discussed, okay, should we be doing this first of all? And how do we approach the subject? And I think we both said we want to be honest Mm -hmm. with our stories. And yeah, we should talk about it. Absolutely. Because a lot of people struggle. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of different ways to talk about infertility. But for us, moms in the middle, if you follow along through season one, often we take a lighthearted approach to different things. But this is something where, you know, we became moms through this journey that we've been on. So um, for me personally, uh, it took over four years before we had our son. And I think our approach was very much what a lot of people uh, think. I'm going to get my career in order. I'm going to get this in order. And you think about the, I'm going to get pregnant at this age. You kind of lay out the framework for the timeline and all of this. And things don't always work as planned. And so for my husband and I, we had trouble within the first year. We got referred to a fertility specialist. And then we started the process, which was very eye-opening on, okay, we need some sort of intervention, some medical intervention. Uh, We went through um, IUI, you'll hear that term, uh, intrauterine insemination. And that's when uh, maybe things just aren't literally meeting and they need to be able to meet the sperm and the egg and all of that. And we went through three rounds of that, uh, which was exhausting. Uh, it is uh, very much wearing. Anyone who's been through it understands that, you know, there's the poking and the prodding um, and the daily visits, uh, which are less than pleasant. And you have to wait a certain amount of time before you start up another one. All of that was unsuccessful. Um, The doctor said, let's move you on to IVF. And at this point, there was nothing really, I don't want to say wrong, but there was no clear reason why we weren't getting pregnant, which I think made it even more frustrating because I wish they said, here's why. And here's a possible solution. Instead, it was, let's try this. So we moved on to IVF. Um, and I had a, a, a an experience where they told me that all of my uh, eggs didn't look great. They looked irregular, uh, meaning <laughs> if they had tried to uh, fertilize any of these eggs at this clinic that I was at said that they it, it would be either an unsuccessful, unsuccessful pregnancy or a child that would maybe have um, some issues later in life. Um, so I took a break. We took a break from it because it was wearing. Um, you know, you're going to work every single day. You're starting your day in uh, a, with a lab, you know, blood work, ultrasounds. Um, and we had to take a, a mental break and a physical break because I think it started to get very wearing. And anyone who's been through this understands that it's very hard to describe how much of a toll it takes on you in every which way, shape and form. Uh, we switched clinics just for a fresh start. And uh, IVF round two, and we got down to the final frozen embryo, which is now Josh, who's three years old. And it is a successful story now, but it was one that we weren't sure was going to happen. And, and we were hoping for the best and we, we got the best, but I know not everyone's story ends this way and people take different paths. I want to ask, did you talk to anyone about it when you were going through it, those four years? Uh, I'd say in the very beginning, I didn't necessarily open up. Uh, I slowly started opening up to people who I thought I could trust, who could empathize. Uh, 
but I, I did keep a lot of it in, especially with coworkers, because in, in the work environment, you kind of want to just um, do your job. And in the type of industry that we are both in, uh, you have to be on. You have to be really on. There was there was a time when I found out uh, I got the results from uh, the doctors, the nurses saying I wasn't pregnant and I went on air within uh, an hour after that. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, you get the results in the middle of your day. So, uh, yes and no. Yes yeah. and no. But it, it's definitely a journey. And I know, Ivanka, you've mm-hmm. you've gone through a different and similar route as well. What was yours like? So, um, I decided late in my life, uh, well, late, especially when you're a woman in childbearing years, at the age of 36, that I wanted to have a child. So, I already knew that I was behind the eight ball. So, um, we tried unsuccessfully for a couple of months. And then, because I am an impatient person, and I think I just knew the odds at that age of getting pregnant. So, we went to a clinic after a couple of months. And we were there for four months, two months of drugs in the second month of help uh, with drugs worked. And then I had my son, George. So uh, it wasn't as long enduring, but I got a glimpse of what it was like going to the clinic for, yeah, for the prodding and the pricking and the the calls of disappointment. You know, no, you're not pregnant this month. Come back tomorrow and we'll put you on this drug or, you know, whatever was going to try to work. So um, it was... Gosh, it was so heavy. I didn't tell. My husband and I kept it to our, ourselves for the first few months mm-hmm. just because it was easier doing it that way. And I didn't want, yeah, I, I didn't want anyone to know because if it didn't work, then he, I didn't want to see their faces, crestfallen faces, or disappoint anyone else. And and even me more so if they were asking. So, um, so we were fortunate that it didn't take as long, but gosh... It was terrible. And there was nothing that my husband could do. He wanted to help. He wanted to um, be there for me as much as he could and obviously be very supportive. And I was thankful for that. But, you know, I work very late at evening and you have to be at the clinic at very early hours of the morning. And so I was kind of burning the candle at both ends, just in coming home and just exhausted and tapped out. And um, and he couldn't, like, he can't go to the appointment for me. Sure, right. he could drive me there, but there was nothing he could do. So that's my story. Yeah, you and you don't what? expect it to happen. You just, I, I think a lot of people, you expect to have kids. And like you said, there's a plan and a schedule and, okay, we're ready to go, yeah. so let's go. And then doesn't, it's doesn't interrupted that way. and yeah. it doesn't. So, um so it's a lot of coping and uh, and dealing with a harsh reality. But I know we're not alone. Definitely not. What, um, what which is, is why six? we wanted oh to talk gosh. about this. I think it was so important. Um, but we thought we should talk to a counselor, someone who's not only been in this position, but also dished out some professional advice. So Dara Roth Edney, a fabulous woman, a reproductive counselor. And I didn't have a counselor when mm-hmm. I was going through this. Um, I wish I had someone like Dara because she has worked with hundreds of individuals and couples who have struggled through the emotional journey of infertility. She's also a member of a number of organizations that put this topic at the forefront. We need to be talking about it more and not hiding and making it a secret. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk. And interestingly, Dara is a mother of two, both through surrogacy after years of infertility treatment. So you are the perfect person to speak with today, Dara. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me here. And I've got to throw in a personal note here. We met, I believe it was five years ago, because when I was going through um, our treatments, I spoke to you. My husband and I sat down with you and it was definitely um, an interesting, it was an eye opener, I'd say, because you really explore what kind of emotional state you're in and you might think you're ready for something and maybe you're not. So let's start there. The idea of um, infertility, one in six couples in Canada. That's a huge number. 
It is a huge number. And actually, if you're talking about treatment and fertility care, it's actually bigger than that because one in six is looking at infertility. So the World Health Organization defines infertility as if you're under 35 and you've been trying to conceive for a year without success or have had more than three losses, over 35, six months, and more than three losses. So that is a very specific definition of infertility. But obviously, if you're single, if you're queer, if you have a medical illness that isn't infertility, but that is contraindicated to pregnancy. So when you sort of look at those populations, we're talking about actually considerably more Canadians who could benefit from fertility treatment and care and who may end up experiencing some of the stressors and difficulties that people do when they're going through fertility treatments. So you're not a doctor, you're a counselor. Definitely not a doctor. <laughs> Correct. So why is your role so important? What are you offering to people? That's a great question. And I actually really appreciate that question because oftentimes if a doctor suggests somebody see a counselor, their feeling is that the doctor thinks that they're not coping well. They sometimes think that it's a bit of a gatekeeper role, that the doctor is making them see me, and then I am somehow going to say that they're not emotionally equipped to move forward in treatment or anything like that. So I appreciate that. That's a great question. And regardless of what brings you to fertility treatment, if you're coming in excited and happy because you're a lesbian couple and you're expecting it to work well, or if you're a heterosexual couple who's been trying for years on your own, um, things don't always go according to plan. And even if they go according to the way it's been explained to you, there still can be bumps in the way. And so the benefit of counseling can be sometimes just around information Uh, doctors, clinics, nurses have a certain amount of time to spend and they spend it well and they take really good care of patients. It's not the same thing as sitting for an hour or an hour and a half in a counselor's office, being able to talk about all the things that you're afraid of, that you're nervous about, ways that partners can support each other, ways people who are on their own can find support, answering questions around specific fears or worries, talking through treatment plans, next steps. Mm -hmm. People are often focused on right now, um, but what happens if your insemination doesn't work? What happens if your IVF doesn't work? Um, Having a chance to really understand what the chances are of something working or the risk of loss. Those are things that if people have a sense of beforehand, they can arrange their expectations for what their treatment plan is, talk to the doctor about that. And then if they don't get good news, they have a sense of, of what could be next. It doesn't feel like the end of the world if they've had a chance to explore what some of those things would be. Um, so those are some of the things that we do in counseling. It's a lot. It's a it's lot. It's a lot. Darren, I'm going to say it was uh, such an eye-opener because I remember leaving your office and it was very cathartic because you kind of put it all on the table, right? And things that maybe even with your partner, you don't discuss. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you talk more about the logistics. Okay, let's do these IUIs, so the intrauterine uh, insemination, or let's do the IVF, but you're not really tackling how is this making me feel? How is this making you feel? And there are so many, what I learned was um, a lot of misconceptions around fertility, everything from, uh, so I, I'm 37 and, you know, that's that's considered old these days, isn't it? Uh, I mean, all always. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I don't think that's changed. Uh, I think what's changed is people's awareness at different, it seems like in different generations and different stages, there's different awareness of what fertility means, what women's fertility means and men's fertility means. So women are born with all the eggs we'll ever have. Uh, I think it's, and any doctor out there might end up correcting me on this, but I think it's about 2 million when we're born, uh, all the way up through menopause, right? When their eggs are done. And 
my understanding, again, not a doctor, but my understanding is that by 35, 95% of our eggs are gone. And that's just biological. So it doesn't matter how healthy we are. It doesn't matter if we do yoga or play tennis or we're vegetarian. Like no matter how well we take care of ourselves, which matters in other realms of our life, our eggs are our eggs. And um, and that's biological. And the quality, it's not just the quantity, but the quality is also um, compromised. But we're talking about the woman and we should maybe make a point that it's also the male that's affected. So it's not always, because there is a lot of pressure, obviously, as a woman is a carrier. Absolutely. But it's an issue for for both sexes. Absolutely. And actually now more and more there's research that's showing that age doesn't just make a difference with the woman, that while it isn't as time sensitive for men, um, that actually there are impacts to age on sperm quality, on impacts of children's outcome, health outcomes when you're talking about sperm. And so, absolutely, I think it's something like 30% of infertility is male factor, um, 30% is female factor, and the other percent is actually a combination of both. Mm-hmm. There's lots of people that end up having a combination where maybe if it was only one person or the other, they wouldn't need assistance, but together combined, uh, it ends up being a problem that that does. So, Dara, you've been doing this for um, specifically reproductive counseling for about 15 years now. Yeah, a little over that, yeah. Has anything surprised you when you've sat down and met with couples? Have you, you know, met with couples and they kind of maybe knew or thought they knew what they were getting into and left your office on a totally different path? What sort? What are some of the scenarios that you've run into? Uh, I would say one scenario is people are, understandably so, really focused on... Uh, for people who don't have children, very focused on that first baby. And so part of what I also do is try and open up to think about what are things that you could do now that are not only focused on that first baby, which is, of course, the priority and the main focus, but also that will enable you to think forward. So, for example, somebody who's using a sperm donor or an egg donor might care very much that the children that they have have that same donor. Uh, But if they're only focused on baby number one, then a few years from now when they go to have baby number two, they won't have any more eggs or sperm from that donor. So, of course, the focus needs to be on what's happening now, but sort of keeping an eye to the future. What is your future plan? Um, The same thing with deciding between an anonymous or an open identification donor. Um, The push now really is openness, having allowing children to have the right to know their genetics when they grow up. Uh, And one of the things certainly I talk to people about is that if you choose anonymous, you're closing the door on some of those conversations. Whereas if you choose open, it doesn't force you to tell your child anything. Like it doesn't, nobody comes into your home to say something. But when you choose open, it allows you that option of having those options for your child, of having those discussions, if that's your choice in the future. So I think those are areas where people sometimes come in with a lot of fear and a lot of misunderstandings or a lot of uh, misconceptions about what path they want to take or what is best for them or for a child. And sometimes in discussion, they'll start to see a different perspective and maybe they'll leave the office and decide afterwards, no, they they like their first opinion. Uh, but sometimes opinions shift in those kinds of ways. And speaking of <clears throat> taking different paths, because there's going drugs, IUI, IVF, but then there's also adoption or surrogacy as you have both children through surrogacy. So how do you how do you come to that conclusion <clears throat> or that point where you have to decide which which is best for you? Yeah. Those are really hard decisions to make. Some of them are made in by just medically decisions. So your doctor saying um, you are no longer a good a candidate for IVF, so in vitro fertilization, or you're no, we don't think you're a good candidate for IUI, intrauterine insemination. You need to move to IVF or um, your AMH. That's one of the blood tests that checks for ovarian reserves uh, is so low. We think that actually IVF won't be suitable. You need to move to egg donation or the male is azospermic, there is no sperm. So you need to move to sperm donation. So, you know, there are those kinds of things. Somebody who's had recurrent loss 
where a doctor isn't necessarily saying you'll never be able to carry a baby to term. Like no doctor ever said to me with 100% certainty, you will never be able to carry a baby to term. But it sort of seemed like it, it, it wasn't happening. So there comes a point where either a doctor is making a suggestion or where people themselves are feeling so exhausted by the despair of it not working. And actually, that's one of the most common things that I hear. And certainly from my own experience, when I think about, you know, what made me move from IUI to IVF and then IVF to surrogacy, it was that each thing you try, you start off with hope, right? So partnered in a heterosexual relationship, threw away birth control, woohoo, let's get pregnant, trying the old-fashioned super fun way, not getting <laughs> pregnant. But at first, like, that was hopeful. It felt amazing. And then after six months, it stopped feeling amazing. Like, it started feeling awful. Everything about it started feeling awful. And then it was like, let's go to a clinic. And then IUI, amazing, great. Then after three IUIs, it started feeling like the idea of another IUI kind of filled me with despair. Like, I was just like, this isn't going to work. So, okay, IVF feels hopeful. And then at a certain point, and that's different for everybody, it, it just starts to feel like you're, you're knocking your head against a wall. Like that, that idea of doing the same thing over and over again is a definition of insanity. And so for me, it was that the idea of doing another IVF, it filled me with such despair that I don't even have words to describe what it made me feel like. Like it just made me feel hopeless. And I remember thinking, if my doctor could say to me, if you did four more IVFs, you'd have a baby. It would work. I was like, I don't, I don't have it in me. Mm-hmm. I don't have four more IVFs in me. I can't do it. So even if somebody could assure me that it would work, I, feel, I felt so hopeless and so exhausted. But then surrogacy, I was like, that might work. Yeah. And so for a lot of people, it's all of a sudden something feeling like this might be the, this might be the answer and feeling like they cannot do what they have been doing anymore. So, you know, both Ivanka and I had a hard time getting pregnant. Our experiences, they were different, but still pretty difficult. And we started this podcast so that we can talk about parenting and being moms. And we're lucky to be moms, but... You know, there was a point when I was ready. Maybe it wasn't going to happen. And mm-hmm. you, like you said, you know, you're, there are so many stressors in your life. And this is one, a big one, which is out of your control, really, at least when it comes to your body. Um, and I remember through that process, because it took my husband and I over four years. We did three IUIs and two rounds of IVF. And, and our, our son, who's three now, was our last frozen embryo. Wow. Mm. So, you know, we, we just said, let's, let's give it a shot. And if it doesn't work, now let's move to the next step. Um, But I remember through that process, there are a number of things uh, that people would say along the way that just did not help. And that's something I really want to touch on is um, what are those things? And I remember they say things that are kind of triggers for you. And it was a lot of um, family members. Hey, you've been married X amount of years. Mm -hmm. You planning kids anytime soon? Mm -hmm. Um, I remember an employee, a fellow uh, colleague said something along those lines and it was maybe the week earlier that I found out that I was unsuccessful for something and I found out in the middle of the day and then oh. he said something and I actually, it, the anger kind of just builds with inside, within you and I unleashed it on him, not meaning to yell at him, but I just said, it is none of your business, what is going on? And, and so what are some of those tips that you give people that are going through this on how to deal with it when people are coming to them not intending to hurt them? Mm-hmm. What, what, mm-hmm. How do they deal with it? So I think that's, I mean, I would say that's probably one of the top things that we talk about. And I have run a monthly support group, and that is one of the things that comes up every month, like how to manage those kinds of things. So there's different strategies. One is making a decision around disclosure, which is a huge thing for people, deciding when to tell, who to tell. It feels risky often to tell people that you're struggling. Uh, It can be helpful. I know for me... 
the reason I decided ultimately to tell people in my life I was struggling was because exactly that. People were saying hurtful things to me all the time. I was leaving social and family interactions in tears, devastated, feeling like people had basically stabbed me in the heart. And they were like, la, 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 like having no awareness. Of course, they love me, like no awareness of how hurtful it was. And I started feeling so angry and and upset with people that I love. And at one point I thought, like, it's not really fair. I'm not giving them a chance to step up. So for me, I thought I'm going to tell a few people what's going on um, because then they'll either have an opportunity to sort of change their behavior and help support me in a way that I need or I'll be justified in, hmm. yeah. <laughs> I'll be justified in being angry. Um, so being conscious about that, that can come with tremendous benefits, finding out that other people that you know and love are struggling as well. And I have people who've said to me, you know, nobody in my life will understand. None of them are going through this. And I say, well, how do you know? And they're like, well, they would have told me. I'm like, but you didn't tell any of them. Mm-hmm. Right. And so often, especially around miscarriage, people will disclose that they've had a miscarriage and they find out that, you know, their aunt did or their sister did or their mom or their best friend or their friend's sister or like that, you know, that kind of thing. And the same thing with struggles. There's also a downside, which is people that you had really, really expected to be empathetic and supportive aren't. Uh, so being very thoughtful about who you disclose to. And sometimes I suggest people literally like make a list of people in your life <laughs> and decide who you think would be a good person to disclose to. It can be really helpful to have an ally. So in a social group, in a family setting, to pick one person who's like, this is what I need from you. I need you to bypass when people are asking me about kids. Like, I need you to come in and change the conversation. If you're out for dinner with a bunch of girlfriends, many of whom are pregnant or have kids, it can be helpful to have somebody say like, wow, we've been talking about our kids for like five minutes now. Maybe let's talk about something mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not you sort of feeling like you have to do that. Preparation is really useful. So thinking ahead about where you're going. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you know that you are going to a Passover Seder or an Easter egg hunt or a big Easter dinner or, you know, whatever, like a big event, think about who's going to be there. And if you can anticipate those questions, right, if you're going to a wedding from somebody you went to with university, people you haven't seen in five years, everyone's going to ask you about why you haven't had a second kid yet, why you haven't had a third kid yet, why you haven't had your first kid yet. People are going to ask you those questions. So if you are prepared for that and you know that, you can decide for yourself how you're going to navigate those situations. I want to do the flip side. There might be a lot of parents listening who um, they've had kids, no problem. They've been blessed and lucky to have them. And they might be saying things that (laughs) are hurting other people, which they're not aware of. So what are some of those things on the flip side? Uh, So there are lots of things. And I think certainly to be clear that we are talking about people who are well-intended. You know, mm-hmm. we're t- talking about people who love their friends and their siblings and their children and they, they want to say the right thing. People feel helpless. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of telling people to relax, mm-hmm. um, telling people a sort of an assurance. Like if you're if you say, you know, if you're upset about a loss or about an IVF that didn't work, somebody's saying like, don't worry, the next one will work. Mm-hmm. You know, and that makes people really angry. Like you don't know that. You can't promise that. Um, so I think giving people advice, uh, suggesting doctors, suggesting treatment, So I think unless somebody asks you for advice, don't give them advice. Uh, And platitudes, like it's all, it'll be okay. There's a reason for everything. Everything happens for a reason. Just relax. I know somebody who went on vacation and, you know, she gave up. You know, in the vacation thing, we actually joke about it in my support group because now with Zika, it's like, okay, Uh. not only A, I don't have money to go on vacation because I spent (laughs) it all on fertility. I have to go to Alaska. (laughs) It's like, where am I supposed to go? So... You guess you'll stay warm. Exactly. (laughs) So I think, you know, those kinds of things are really important to to really think about um, what the person in front of you needs is empathy. Mm -hmm. And the answer to empathy is never your solution. The answer to empathy is actually empathy. It's saying, I'm so sorry you're going through this. 
It's saying, I can't imagine what this is like. It's saying, I can only imagine because it took me seven months to get pregnant. And I know that that's normal, but I know how scared I was. So I can't even imagine how much hard this would be for you, right? Mm -hmm. It's actually just saying, this is terrible. I hear that it's terrible for you. And I love you. It's actually pretty straightforward. And it's actually what you need when somebody dies. It's what you need when you've had a diagnosis. That's advice that you can take to a lot of different things. It's just empathy. It's empathy. Yeah. And the other flip side, I would say, is that for for people going through this, we often know what we don't want, what we don't want people to say to us. But then we often don't tell people what would be useful. So that's also helpful, I think, for people going through this to be able to think, okay, if you've told your parent, for example, don't ask me questions, don't ask me how I am, (laughs) don't Mm -hmm. ask me for results, like I'll tell you when I have news, it's very hurtful when you say this, it's very hurtful when you say that. So then people are like, okay, well, what do I do? As opposed to saying, actually, you know what would be helpful? What would be helpful is the week leading up to my IVF, if you could take my dog. It would be helpful if you could make me some soup to put in my freezer. It would be helpful if you asked me a question in this way. You know, I found if somebody said to me, how are you? I was like, what do you mean how I am? Like, my world is over. I feel like I'm dying. I'm terrible. Overanalyze it. But if somebody said to me, how are you doing today? Like that, it's a small thing, but it felt different. It felt like they recognized that overall I'm not good. Mm -hmm. But even when you're overall not good, you can still have good days. You can Mm -hmm. still have good moments. So it's sort of being able to hopefully talk back and forth about what's needed and not to try and offer solutions from somebody who they, they need empathy. That's it. This is all really, really well said. Yeah. So one thing that I noticed that really stood out about going to the clinic, because you have to go for your blood work and your ultrasound, um, was that it's like a cattle ranch. You go in, no one wants to talk to anyone, whether it's because Mm -hmm. they want to keep it a secret or they're embarrassed or they, there's just this, this cloak over it where you you just don't want to talk to anyone about it. And I know I would always go down with my cap pulled low and my glasses on and kind of, you know mysterious person, walk in, walk out, you get your business done and you leave. But I don't know if that's that's healthy. And kind of the same thing where where maybe you need to tell people or you speak up because you're all in this together. And I do notice that there has been more awareness about infertility and there's the awareness week. Um, and, you know, you go on social media and there are more people who are to- openly talking about their struggles. I know, Mel, mm-hmm. you have done that. And it's probably not only helped you, but helped other people because they see you, you know, someone in the spotlight and oh, wow, she's had trouble too, so I'm not alone. And so it's nice to have someone, you know, open up about that, like you were just talking about earlier, Dara, but it's also these places where you just go in and you don't, It's you're kind of alone, you're yeah. alone. And some people bring their partners and some don't. And yeah, it's not, they don't make it a comfortable space or maybe that's us, we put it on ourselves that we don't. It's interesting because I've definitely thought that before and I've wondered like what would happen if a clinic um, had a room just off to the side of cycle monitoring, which was had a sign on it that said, if you want to talk, come and sit in this room. Mm-hmm. Right? Because I actually hear that all the time where women are like, it's so weird. I'm sitting there. And especially when you're cycle monitoring for a particular cycle, mm-hmm. you're monitoring with the same women. Yeah. Um, so if anybody who's listening who doesn't know what that is, like when you're going through a cycle of uh, testing or insemination or IVF, they're monitoring you regularly to see where your hormone levels are, your uterine lining, all of that. And so you're going in all the time. And if your IVF is in May then you're cycle monitoring with all the other women whose IVF is in May, right? So it's not just that you're all sitting alone. It's that you're seeing the same women every morning. And <laughs> like still not having those conversations. Every morning, yeah. right? Not having, you know, and then maybe you're seeing them when you go in for your egg retrieval, like they're there in their hospital gowns with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I often have wondered, like, what would happen if they had that room? Would anybody go? Would anybody talk? Right. You know it's, what? I, I think it's really hard to know. I think people are, all of us are looking for people who understand. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that there's a fear that people won't understand, right? So I often have people will say to me, you know, I'm um, my IUI didn't work or my first IVF didn't work. And I know people, people say this all the time, I know people have it much worse. Like I know it's my only one IVF and I know people have done many more and I shouldn't really complain. Or it's just IUI and I know that's not such a big deal, but I'm, and they, are, they mm-hmm. sort of are apologizing for being upset. Yeah. Um, and I always just think like our pain is our pain and it's not, it's not relative. Like we feel the most pain that we feel. And if your failed IUI is the worst thing that's happened to you, that is the worst thing. And mm-hmm. it is comparable to somebody else's worst thing, whatever their worst thing is, because our worst thing is our worst thing, right? Mm-hmm. And this, this goes to our deepest, deepest wants and desires and senses of who we are. And so I do sometimes wonder like that there's a fear that if you tried to connect with the person next to you, maybe she wouldn't understand because what she's going through is on paper so much worse. Mm. Right. Right. Um, And as you said, people feel private and there's a lot of shame still around this. Uh, And people don't know if the person next to them wants to talk. Yeah. Yeah. But it is amazing how many times people say exactly that. Mm -hmm. Because it's such, when you get that that news that that it didn't work, you're not pregnant. Um, I know for me, I felt so alone, but I'm such a people person and I have good friends and I wanted to talk to them. But then there's something I just want to keep to myself too. So, I can, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a tough one for sure. Like, and and it is one of those where I think I struggled with that same thing, Dara, because I knew people who were going through IVF at the same time and had gone through multiple cycles, and I didn't want to feel like I was burdening them, even though they were going through the same thing mm-hmm. as me. I still didn't want to compare because I'm, I was only on cycle two, and they were on cycle five. Um, and they'd spent thousands upon thousands and time and hours and stress and emotion through that. So it, I don't think there's a right answer, right? I want to ask you one thing because our, our show is called Moms in the Middle specifically because Ivanka and I meet like literally in the middle of our days because, um, you know, that's exactly it. And there's a lot of people who are doing some juggling. Mm -hmm. You know, they are dealing with infertility, let's say, by way of not being able to get pregnant and miscarriages, um, any of the above. Um, And they're also dealing with all of the other life stresses, they are going to work. They are dealing, maybe they're helping with other family members. There, there are a lot of things in the air, a lot of balls in the air. <sighs> Is there a magic solution on how to juggle everything? If there is, I think we'd all <laughs> be millionaires. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that I often say to people who come to see me is lower the bar. Everybody doesn't have to be perfect at everything all of the time. So we all have whatever capacity we have. And at different points in our life, we have the capacity to do more and to do less, right? So you think about different points in your life where you were like, I had the capacity to exercise all the time and to do my job and to see my friends and to see my family and to keep my home. And like, you were like, I was like a rock star. Mm -hmm. And then you go through something terrible and your capacity isn't the same. You know, think about yourself like a battery. We all only have so much energy. So if you keep your bar at the same level of expectation for yourself, with your friendships, with your family connections, with your work, with your partner, and you add fertility struggles in, it's not possible. So just lower the bar, (laughs) right? Like if usually you operate at 100% at work, is it really the end of the world if sometimes you're at a 70%? I don't mean like if you're a surgeon in surgery, (laughs) but even a surgeon in surgery, like there's other stuff that surgeons do that doesn't need to be at 100% the way surgery does, Mm. right? So being able to look Mm. at how you spend your time with your friends, how you spend your time with your family, how you spend your time at home, lower the bar. Give yourself permission to drop the ball a little bit. Recognize that it isn't actually only you. You mentioned the struggles everybody has. Everybody does. So maybe some of your friends are operating at 100% now, but next year, maybe they won't be. You know, people have family members who die. They lose their jobs. They have to move. They have People have 
all kinds of tragedies throughout their life that makes it so they are not able to give 100% all of the time in every sphere of their life. And this is a big one. So just give yourself that permission. Done. I feel like you've you've counseled, you've given us such great therapy. Is this a free session? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We're going to owe you for any She's going to bill us. Oh, this has been so helpful, all of it. Um, Lowering the bar, be kind and be empathetic. Yeah. I think that's great advice to take forward. Thank you so much, Dara. Thank you. We really hope you enjoyed listening to this episode because it was very personal for us. And we want you to still stay with us. We enjoy your feedback. We enjoy your comments and suggestions. Find us on Twitter at Frequency Pods or website FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com. You can also catch us on Instagram, Mums in the Middle Podcast. And as always, we want to say special shout out to Steph Phillips, who produces Mums in the Middle. And this is presented by Frequency Podcast Network. So thank you so much for joining us. And we'll see you on the next episode of Mums in the Middle. 